So if I get confused, you'll understand. Forgot my iPad, had to print my notes out on paper. How awful is that? I just feel so bad for those trees. Did you check the batteries? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So we're going to be... Um, we're going to be sharing on <coughs> what I'm calling bottom line beliefs. So last week at our annual business meeting, I indicated that I was going to be making a real concerted effort to be very intentional with what I share with you on Sunday mornings. And I'm specifically going to be focusing on, on three areas um, over this next year, I should say, as we seek to kind of refocus and find our our purpose and direction from the Lord as a, as individuals, first of all, and then as a church, as a corporate body of Christ. And uh, so, I'm going to be sharing from three particular uh, three particular areas uh, frequently over the next course of the next year. The first one is what I'm calling bottom line beliefs, and that's really a review. I hope for all of you of what you believe and why. And uh, this is really intended to help, one, build your confidence as you share the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, there's an instruction in Scripture that says we should always have a ready answer for the peace that we have in our hearts. The peace, the joy, the confidence, even when, you know, the world is, seems to be crumbling around us. And uh, so we, we need to have a ready answer. And sometimes that we don't feel so sure of ourselves. And that's one of the reasons why I'm going to be spending time looking at the bottom, bottom line beliefs um, of Christianity to help build your confidence in sharing the gospel. Secondly, I'm going to be also be sharing messages that are focused more on really what you'd call discipleship and discipleship, and they're specifically going to be challenging you to develop some new spiritual disciplines and then also to strengthen existing spiritual disciplines because I think we all have spiritual disciplines you know some and they they may be different ones you know so I'm going to challenge you to develop some new ones and to strengthen the ones that you're already uh, that you already practice and so that, that's going to be and I'm calling those uh, step messages um, and then lastly I'm going to be sharing some just uh, sharing some practical messages that are focused really on the day-to-day application of your faith. Because we all know, and we all know this in our hearts, that Christianity is not about what we do here. It's not about what we do here in this room or in this building. The, and, and we all know that being the church is really not about what we do here in this building and you know we've dedicated this building and it it's it's an important thing we need to take care of it but more importantly is that we're the church when we leave this place because that's when the church truly becomes effective the church is effective in spreading the gospel when we leave and so i'm going to be sharing some messages that are kind of specifically uh, aimed in that direction and I'm calling those uh, that particular series, which is all three of these are kind of kind of run off and on for the next uh, eight nine months. Um, I'm calling those uh, purpose purposeful living. And uh, so this morning we're going to be back to that first category. And between the the snowstorm that God sent to keep me from giving you all the flu. Um, you know, that, that would have been our Sunday to share a bottom line belief. And then we had, 
I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, I was sick the next Sunday and, and the Sunday after that I still didn't have a voice or I couldn't talk without coughing and so I didn't get a chance to share. We're going to try to get back on track is where I'm going with that. And uh, so this morning we're going to be sharing um, one of, from one of the bottom line beliefs. So a couple of weeks ago we shared the first one and that is that Jesus is the only way. And in today's society you hear a lot of, a lot of messages will say, you know, I'm fine with you having your Jesus, but I believe that this is the way to God or to, or this is the God way. But the reality is this, is that by its very nature, Christianity is exclusionary. It is exclusive. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If any man seeks to come to the Father, he has to come through me. Jesus is the one way. And so that, that was our first bottom line belief is that Jesus is the one and only way to salvation and reconciliation, ship, uh, reconciliation with God of our relationship. So this morning, we're going to be moving on. We're going, to find, we're going to be looking at another foundational truth of our faith. And we can find that in Ephesians, the second gospel, or second gospel, second chapter, rather, and beginning to read in verse 1. So Turn with me there, if you would, in your, in, in your Bible and follow along. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to read from verse 1 through verse 10. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus." that in the age to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that's our foundational truth this morning. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. <clears throat> so this morning we're going to look at three three particular things or three particular truths that we find in this. Number 1, you were dead. You and I were dead. Every man, woman and child on this earth is dead and I I thought of a really good little movie clip that demonstrates this truth well. So Brandon's going to play that for us. Some of you probably have seen this. Trouble, aren't you, son? Yeah, well, uh, that was my stepdad's ball. I took it without asking. It was so 
<laughs> now, <laughs> I thought that demonstrated it pretty well. See, at this point in the, <laughs> at this point in the movie, stepdad doesn't know the baseball's been taken off the shelf. And even though Smalls, and this is one of my favorite movies of all time, by the way, just, it's classic. It's called The Sandlot. <laughs> um, even though even though this young man is not yet had his punishment exacted, it's like the gentleman said, you're not in trouble. You're dead where you stand. Now, obviously, he wasn't dead. But there, and that is really the condition that every one of us finds ourselves in. We were dead in trespasses. We're dead in sin. You were dead. And see, the reality is, you look around, and, and we even do this sometimes. We look around and we say, hey, I'm doing pretty well. I think... Someone said that this morning in Sunday school. I'm doing pretty well. I'm okay. Things are going well. My job is going well. I've got promotions. You know, all these things. We just look at our current state and we think things are pretty good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be fine. But the reality is, is that the wages of sin, the scripture's clear. We read that in Romans chapter 6. The wages of sin is death. We are dead where we stand. Every man, woman, and child is in the same place. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. You are dead where you stand. And, and this is one of the, I think, is one of the, the most, well, they're all really mean, nasty tricks that the enemy uses. But he loves to use current circumstance and, and try to hide the fact that there is impending punishment. I don't want to say doom, but kind of. From us, and he causes us, well, look around. Things are going well. You know, your, your, your family's doing well. You, again, you have a great job. You're successful. People like you. Whatever it happens to be, you're doing fine. But the reality is, you're dead where you stand. Even though that punishment has not yet been exacted, it is looming, so to speak. You're dead where you sin. At that point in time, everyone finds our, we find, every man, woman, child, every one of us finds ourselves standing outside of a locked door. In order to regain relationship with heaven, there is a locked door, and that door is locked because of sin. We've been given many, many different um, demonstrations of that or, or illustrations of that. You look in the Old Testament, you look at the temple, and as you went from the outside to the inside, so to speak, there was a place which was considered the holiest of holy places, and that's where God was. And, and you all remember what separated where God was from the rest of the temple. There was a heavy curtain, which we call the veil. And that veil between God's presence and mankind was erected by sin. It was a physical representation of sin. It literally blocked us and kept us from his presence. It's what locked us out. And so every one of us, even though we may not understand it or realize it, we are standing outside of a locked door. We cannot get to God. We cannot get into that, that place of reconciled relationship. Salvation is a locked door, and there is absolutely nothing that you can do to unlock that door. 
Listen to what it says in James chapter 2 and verse 8. It says, if, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law, listen, and here's, here's the sticker, here's the kicker. Forever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point. He is guilty or accountable to all of it. So basically what he's saying is there's no almost. If you want to gain, if you want to gain salvation by your works, you have to be absolutely 100% perfect. 100% perfect. How many of you have ever done anything 100% perfect? Really? <laughs> Leave it to your kids, right? What? <laughs> yeah, exactly. None of us really have done anything absolutely 100% perfect. I remember in high school, I, I, I played in the band in high school. And we went to a competition. And it was my senior year, and we were determined that we were going to go to regional. I think we had already been to our district competition. We'd gotten a high enough score there that we could move on. And we were, we were pretty jazzed about it. Hadn't been happened to our band in a long time. We had a tiny little, I went to a small school. We had a tiny little band. I mean, literally, we would go to these competitions and we'd go in to perform in the auditorium. And when we did our setup, the first thing we had to do was remove three quarters of the chairs and the music stands off the stage because our band was up less than half the size of every other band that performed. And so we got there and we were there. And one of the parts of competition and one of the, we had done very well with our regular performances. We were feeling really good. Then we went to uh, the, uh, uh, the part that's called sight reading. In other words, they literally slap music down in front of you. They give the band director, I don't know what it was, 15 minutes or something like that to go over it with you, and then you play it for the judges. You've never seen this music before in your lives. And they put, and you play three different, or two or three different types. There's a march and, and the different things. And so they put, the, they put a, they put a piece, the, piece, the first piece in front of us, and we got so lucky it was easy. We blew through it. We had no problems whatsoever. First piece went perfect. And then we came to the second piece. And they put that second piece in front of us, and it wasn't too bad. And again, we were, now we're feeling really good. And we, we went through that piece, and we got all the way to the end. This is not, I'm not fabricating this or, or exaggerating. We got all the way to the very end. And Mr. Hunt did the, you know, the final cutoff and everything, because it, 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 you know, it was one of those places where it came built to a big crescendo at the end and then whoosh, just chops it right off. And he chops it right off and there was dead silence for a millisecond and then there, there was this honk. <laughs> Our German foreign exchange student, I think, sneezed into his saxophone. <laughs> Something like that. That's the only way I can figure it out. We called him Kraut Dog, but he was, he just, it, it was, everything was perfect except for that one little mistake at the very end.
we did not get a perfect score. See, it's hard to be perfect, isn't it? And according to God's word, if you want to gain salvation through your works, you have to be 100% perfect. That means you can't ever snap at someone when you shouldn't. We all know that none of us is perfect, and so we stand outside of a locked door. We cannot unlock the door to salvation on our own because we can't possibly be perfect. And the reality is, Scripture is pretty clear that when we're born, we are born into sin. So it's really a hopeless cause, isn't it? Salvation is a hopeless cause if you look at it from that direction. So salvation is a locked door. You were dead. I am dead. I was dead in my sin, in my trespass. But, but here's, the, here's the great part. There's a key to unlock that door that's provided by somebody else, and that key is grace. Grace unlocked the door for sal- of salvation to you and me. Our text this morning said, for by grace... You're saved through faith. See, grace unlocks that door. The truth is, is that we, we, we're, we're locked outside the door, and we deserve to be locked out. I know sometimes my sons say that their brother deserves to be locked outside, and they make sure that it happens. We deserve to be locked out, but God's grace unlocks the door. Think of this. Here's the reality. Is what God should have done according to what you and I deserved, and he should have sent the angel of death to come get us. That's really what we all deserve. In, in our sin, God should have sent the angel of death to come get us, but instead, he chose to send his only son to die on the cross for our sins. He sent a savior. Grace unlocks the door to salvation and forgiveness. See, we deserve to be locked out, but God, instead of giving us what we deserve, he doesn't. We've talked about that in the past, about the definition, the difference between mercy and grace. And grace is when God doesn't give us, he gives us what we don't deserve. We deserve it, grace, but we, we don't deserve salvation, but grace unlocks that door. And, you know, people really have a struggle with grace, I think you and I struggle with grace. We struggle with grace. Why? Because it goes against human nature. Grace is not, by its, at the very core, grace is not fair. Think about that. Grace isn't fair. Yeah. It's not fair. I love Matt, Matthew West wrote a song a few years ago called Forgiveness. I, I love the, the, the words of that song. I want to read you the first verse. It says, forgiveness, it's the hardest thing to give away. The last thing on your mind today, it always goes to those who don't deserve. It's the opposite of how you feel when the pain they caused is just too real. It takes everything you have to say, the word forgiveness. See, forgiveness or grace runs against the grain. It isn't fair. I, I literally wish I had a dollar for every time, every time I've heard that. It's not fair. That's not fair. Not just from my kids' voices. I mean, they've said it enough. 
But folks, you hear it every day. That's just not fair. I say it almost every day. It's not fair. Grace is not fair. It runs against it, and that causes us oftentimes to struggle with it. We struggle. <clears throat> How many of you really would say you don't struggle at all with the concept that, that one of the guys who drove the airplanes into the towers or whatever other, what other, think of any other atrocity that's ever been committed, that that person can before they pass into eternity cry out to God and say, God, I'm a sinner. I need your son Jesus. Forgive me of my sins. And God welcomes them with open arms just like he welcomed you with open arms when you asked for forgiveness. We struggle with grace because it's not fair. And whether or not we'd like, we want to own up to it, I'm going to use one of my dad's phrases this morning. I'm going to get to meddling here. I want to read you a passage of scripture from Luke's gospel, the 18th chapter. And I'm going to ask you to identify with it, even though you don't want to. Okay? Luke's gospel, the 18th chapter, verse 9 says, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Now, some people believe that he was praying out loud, and he may have been. We don't know. He says, prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not as so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And I want you to identify with the one that's the most difficult to identify with, and that's the Pharisee. Because I think there is that attitude in us at, at times. Whether or not we voice it, it's there kind of in, a, in this silent expression. Yes, Lord, I need your forgiveness, but at least I'm not as bad as him. And that's a really dangerous thing. It's a really dangerous thing. Because even while we're voicing a recognition of our need for forgiveness, we're saying, I don't need forgiven as much. And yet, what we just talked about, and James says, if you are guilty of one little piece of the law, you are guilty or accountable to all of it. Do you notice James said, well, there's these six things. He didn't say, these are, there are these six things. If you commit these, then you're, you're guilty of you know, 80% of the law. These over here are so small that it's not a big deal. You're only guilty of a little bit. No, he just said, if you, are, if you stumble in one point, you're guilty of them all. And we need to realize that. 
as believers, we need to realize that. And as we share with them, because whether or not we mean for it to come across, so often it does come across to those that we're talking to. And you know what the cliche is for it. We, they say we're acting holier than thou. And that's exactly what that cliche was meant to be, was, was talking about. That we stand before God and we say, yeah, you know, I kind of need forgiveness, but I'm not too bad. I'm feeling pretty good. See, that's not true repentance. It's not true repentance. People struggle with grace in one way or another. One, we struggle with it because it's not fair. just isn't. Thank goodness. And we struggle with it oftentimes because we don't think we really need it. Whether or not we express that. So grace unlocks the door and we need to understand and that needs to be something that really grabs us. I'm currently right now reading a book called uh, Why Something uh, Your God is Too Small or something like that. It says, you know, one of the things that oftentimes we struggle with is our, our, our perspective of God is too small. And this is one of the sources of it. Is because we don't believe that we needed much forgiveness. We don't understand. For us, the gravity and the brevity and the weight of Jesus' sacrifice. You know, we think, well, yeah, he really sacrificed for that guy over there because of what he did or what she did. But me, not so much. Didn't cost him much. No, it cost the same. So grace unlocks the door. And then finally, the third thing that we see in our, in our, in our text this morning in verse 8, we're saved by grace through faith. And this is the way that I kind of like to see it. Grace unlocks the door and opens the door. Faith is what takes us through. Faith is what enables us to step through the door into salvation. A guy named Stephen Cole said there are three ingredients for saving faith. He said those three ingredients are this. One is knowledge. Now you would think, wait a minute. Doesn't that kind of fly in the face of faith? Isn't faith the evidence of things not seen, you know, all of that? Why do we need knowledge? I'll tell you why. It matters what you believe. It matters what you believe. See, there's a very, there is a very, again, a really insidious thought, the, a prevalent thought, and it's not old, or not new, it's old. It's been around for a long time. That it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. It matters what you believe. You have to know that you are a sinner. You have to know that you're a sinner. Saving faith, in order to have true saving faith, after grace has now unlocked the door and may, taken that door that used to be locked and now it's open, all you have to do is walk through it. Faith, saving faith, is what carries you through the door. And the first thing is you have to have knowledge and you have to know, you have to understand you're a sinner. It's that realization that you are a sinner. Secondly, the second ingredient to saving faith is assent. You have to agree to it. You have to accept it. You have to accept it. Because here's the thing. If you don't accept that knowledge that you are a sinner, 
and that Christ has now opened the door to sacrifice, you won't have the third ingredient of saving faith with his trust. Remember I talked about that actually a couple of weeks ago. That you can believe that a 737 will carry you from Detroit Metro Airport to Orlando, because that's where we all want to go, Florida, especially right now. You can believe that, but until you get on the airplane, you don't trust it to take you. You can say, I believe that airplane can fly me, but I think I'm going to get in the car and drive instead. See, saving faith involves knowledge, it involves acceptance or assent, and it involves trust. All three of those ingredients need to be present in order for your faith to carry you through the door of salvation that grace is unlocked. We talk about that every Christmas, that every man, woman, and child, every person has a gift from God if they will just open it and that gift is salvation. They'll just receive it. Your faith receives and trusts and walks you through the door that grace has unlocked for you. So it begins with the realization of your sinfulness and then continues as you walk through the door. Your faith in God's sacrifice is what moves you forward to accept and become his, to accept that reconciliation. And then, once, and then actually there, there's, there's, there's more to it. Sometimes we, we kind of stop right there trusting in Jesus for my salvation, bam, I'm done. But that's not really all that is to the story, right? Remember the prodigal, the son of the, the story of the prodigal son? So what do you suppose happened the day after the party? What happened at the prodigal son's farm, the ranch? He went back to work, didn't he? He went back to work working for the family, working, again, in the, in the business, the family business. And so that's, that's the second part. You know, grace unlocks the door. It makes our salvation possible. Our faith carries us through that door. And then we begin to function as family members because that's what we are. That's just what happens. And so often we chop it off. And we don't do, we're not doing anybody a service at all, by just leaving them at salvation's doorstep, so to speak. Your faith, okay, you're all done. No, then we're responsible then to welcome those people who have, maybe we've had the privilege of, of accompanying as they stepped through that door of salvation by faith, trusted in Christ for their forgiveness of their sin and been reconciled to him. And now we're, folks, we're responsible as big brother, big sis in Christ, or whatever you want to call it, to assist them now in functioning as a part of the family. Faith receives the gift that grace provides. It's a really a simple thing, and, I, and this is not new to anybody here, but it's one of those things sometimes we need, we need to remember. And then I think one of the key things is for us truly to grasp, we need to grasp the power of the st- of, of grace in our own lives. And sometimes I think one of the things that makes us a less than effective witness is we haven't recognized the power of grace in our own lives. 
Let me ask you this. How can you explain to someone the power of grace in their life, what grace can do, what God's grace can do in their lives if we don't believe we needed it? One of the most powerful tools is what we, something someone calls empathy, right? People love others with empathy. And that's someone who understands what it's like to be them. And if we don't truly, if we don't have a proper grasp of what grace in our lives means, how can we explain or bring someone else to the relation of what grace in their life would mean? That's actually one of the points that is being made in the book that I'm reading. So if you don't grasp the nature and how great it was that God forgave you, how can you tell someone else how great it will be that if God forgives them? See, your God is too small. But we're saved by faith, by grace, through faith. What a powerful statement that is. What a powerful thing that is when we realize it in our own lives that God forgave me of my sin. God forgave me of my sin. And only by grace, he unlocked the door of salvation. Literally tore that veil from top to bottom. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks, obviously, right? That's the power. What a powerful statement. It starts, but understanding the power, understand we need to realize I was a sinner. I was dead where I stood. Now that, that boy at, by that point had come to realize why he was dead in his sin. You know, but the, when he first pulled the baseball off the, off the shelf, he had an inclination. There was an inkling that, yeah, I probably shouldn't do this. But he had no idea. At that point, he didn't know who Babe Ruth was. He had no idea of the rarity of the baseball that he was stealing. Stealing. You. Anyways, you should watch the movie. It's fun. Power of grace in your life. I hope that you've recognized the power of grace in your life. Because I think it's one of the, it's one of the things that makes us an effective witness. When we understand what God did for me that I was guilty of all the law. I was just, I am just as guilty as someone who committed the atrocities of the, of the Holocaust. That's tough to grasp, isn't it? It's difficult. It makes us want to say that's not fair. Grace isn't fair, right? 